Get ready for the Very Visible Business Podcast with David Averin. Each week featuring a candid and raucous conversation with some of the most innovative, outspoken, and entrepreneurial business minds in the world today. This is the Very Visible Business Podcast, and here's David Averin. Welcome to the Very Visible Business Podcast. My name is David Averin, and uh, we are thrilled that you took the time to tune in, to download, to listen to those of you who are on my website and the podcast page of my website at davidaverin.com, you get to see a video version of this. So most people on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on C-Suite Radio, iTunes and others is the audio version of this. But if you want to know what we look like, um, and I'm having a particularly good hair day that you are going to want to tune in to the video version of this as well. Today I am joined by a great guest, a special guest, a, uh, someone who, who means a lot to me because we share some DNA. And that's not why he's on the show, but it's probably why he said yes to me to being a part of this. So before quick um, the introduction, let's do a little bit formally. I'll put on my smart glasses as well because I'm rapidly aging and my eyes are horrible. Jacob Tell is a communications expert helping businesses grow through storytelling and technology. Back in 2001, before Wi-Fi, social networks, and smartphones Jacob co-founded Oniracom as a student at UCSB, which is the University of California, Santa Barbara. Oniracom operates based on his vision for positive and lasting change, continuing, continuously evolving digital so, uh, solutions along the ever-changing tech and new media landscape. Partners include musician superstar Jack Johnson, uh, the Santa Barbara Bowl, Warner Music, heard of him, Top Spin, Universal, Sonos, among others. Um, they trust Oniracom to produce authentic stories that rapidly increase brand growth and awareness. Jacob, my friend, my cousin, welcome to the show here today. Wow, that was a mouthful. I need to trim that bio down, don't I? No, there's actually four paragraphs that I did not read. Okay, okay. so I think that I wrote those for my mom, so it's all good. There you go. Um, so, quick background. Um, Jacob actually is my cousin, so my mom was the sister of his father and watched him grow up. Um, we've been friends for life, but watching him build this business since 2000, what are we, so what are we talking about? 18 years, almost 19 years now? Yes, that's um, true. Yeah, um, pre pretty, pretty significant. Do me a favor, talk a little bit louder because I want to make sure we're, that yes, you can be sir. heard because I have this spectacular microphone. Um, and, and we have, Jacob, we have something very interesting in common besides um, a very um, significant section of our, of our genome um, is that you and I both started marketing firms having never worked for one. Um, <laughs> you know, I remember talking even the earlier part of your career. Now you're a master. Now you've got major international brands that you work with as well. But the, um, the, the struggle to understand the structure of the business surrounding it um, was a real challenge for both of us at, at, at sort of different decades. But yeah. uh, but talk about sort of the early years, what your original vision was for this company. And then I would love to talk about, and I think our, our listeners and our viewers would love to hear, you do some really amazing things, um, digital marketing solutions and, and strategies and, and video and work with music and others as well. I'd love to get it. But before we do, talk a little bit about your background. Talk about how you got into this, what the world was like and, and the shift that you've seen. So in the beginning, um, I was in school at UC Santa Barbara studying film. I had a business partner at UCLA and another one at, in Santa Barbara. So the three of us decided, hey, this whole internet thing, we're actually pretty good at it. 
So we were building websites and we started building e-commerce online stores when it was very difficult. Back in those days, it took like 90 days to get a credit card processor set up. So right. now it's like going Before online. we had all the other third-party plugins and everybody else, yeah. you were literally yeah. creating some of these things from scratch, weren't you? Just swiping cards online. It was like a whole, you know, a whole new aura. So what we did is um, we started a company with no idea what we we're doing in terms of business. We had no idea what we we're doing in terms of, like you said, marketing. I didn't know that building websites and online stores on the internet meant we were touching some form of their marketing. I did not have that sense. We did not go in saying, hey, we're a marketing company. We came in saying we're a web shop and we started to serve film and very quickly music clients. So entertainment was our bread and butter. Um, like you said, we got in with Jack Johnson very early. And because of that, we started working with his record label Universal Music Group. And then it's a tiny industry bubble like many, many are. And so we kind of spiraled up through that and worked with the major labels. Over the course of, I would say, five to six years, we became one of the go-to agencies, digital agencies for all the major labels, Disney, Warner, EMI, Sony, Universal, before there was like consolidation. Sure. So, so yeah, that was, the, that was kind of from building web and e-com to, oh, now we are actually doing full digital solutions. We are an agency. We are marketing people. We need to learn what that is. Right. And in the early days, you were actually so immersed in the music world that you actually went on tour um, handling merchandise and understanding the ins and outs and the transactional part and who the audiences are and everything else. Tell us a little bit more about that. That's right. So because we were doing these online stores um, and we were trusted by Jack's camp, they said, hey, why don't you come on the road and do the same thing you're doing online, but in real life? And so we, um, we said, yes, we said, I do. I went on the road. Um, my business partner stayed back in Santa Barbara. And that's where, like you said, I learned the ropes. I figured out, you know, what does every single component of the music business look like from promotion to booking to what a rigger does and a lighting and sound guy does. And from there, we really learned how we can scale and take that, take those learnings back home and start to add value more on a strategic level, less just so tactically. Um, so right. we, and, and, and you were playing on a pretty big stage pretty early. I mean, this was a time yeah. Jack Johnson was on the cover of Rolling Stone, selling out arenas everywhere. So the levels of work that you were doing was fairly high level, fairly quickly. How was that? Did it, did it feel like trial by fire? Did you, did you feel like a roadie um, in Absolutely. that you were packing up, jumping on the bus? Yep. Merch guys got it rough. I mean, we're in at like one, two in the morning on the bus. We're the last guys in because we're counting t-shirts, we're counting dollars. And I had to work very closely with the tour accountant, which I didn't even know it was when I started. It was a thing, right? Thing. Tour managers, tour accountants, tour you know production managers, all these guys, they become kind of my Sherpas through the whole thing. And it was a lot of osmosis and a lot of you know errors, but figured it out. We went all over the world. I was lucky enough to go through Europe and Japan and Australia, New Zealand and North America. It was fantastic. Plus, so, so a lot of hard work. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about, about the shift, the shift, not only in your business, but the shift in market, shift in technology. And how did you make the decision with your team? And you've got how many people you have working for you right now? We've got a team of about 30, but between contractors and employees, um, it ebbs and flows depending on project size. Sure. We were like three, three dudes and a couple interns when we started. Right. And now, now a firm of 30, uh, marketing digital professionals, 
Talk about the shift and where the marketplace went and how you made that decision as to where you were going to shift your resources. Because, um, I mean, at some point, you have to sort of make a decision. We're going we're to specialize or we're going to be generalists in this. And you really are specialists initially within the music industry. And then talk to me about where you went and where you are today. Yeah, so let's, let's camp on the music industry for a minute because it was, I believe, the first domino to fall from the analog to digital conversion. We've seen a lot of other industries go this way. Shortly after you had tel uh, film, television, video games, newspapers, all the other media, but music started it. It was iTunes. It was, you know, before that Napster and LimeWire and file sharing. Then you had iTunes, you had these downloadable MP3s, and eventually you got this whole streaming thing, which is where we live now. But what happened is we had the death of the middleman. And I think that this death of the middleman scenario has happened across so many industries beginning with music. And it was so exciting for us because we were able to position our company as really like you're a musician, you have a manager, you get this digital um, media or digital marketing group. That's all you need. You don't really need a record label anymore. So you saw these record labels that were, you know, very, very necessary at one time in the nineties, early two thousands, just sort of sure. go away. You didn't really need them unless you were trying to get an end cap in Best Buy or Target or Walmart. That right. was kind of the last thing that they did for, marketing of retail CD sales, but like who bought CDs in 2008, let alone 2012. So you start seeing this, you know, down, down uh, fall of the of disc and uprises of streaming. And therefore you need digital strategists to help navigate you through that. So, so we talk, really but, but talk about the role that you play. Cause here's a question. I want to get on, stay on this for a second. Talk about the role that you play because it really has changed. And as it pertains to our listeners and our viewers as well, early part of my career, I was a PR guy. I mean, I had phenomenal success getting my clients on the Today Show on Oprah. Um, we were publicists to help them because we had, I mean, I grew up in a day, you know, we grew up in a day with, there were three channels, you know, maybe the ABC, NBC, CBS, and an independent, right, in the local market. Um, but now we create our own channels, don't we? I mean, it was all about, we needed that middleman to help them get on TV or get in one of the newspapers. And now that we see with, with the youngsters, of course, um, that they just create their own channel. And you were sort of doing the same thing with music as well, weren't you? Absolutely. So with that death of the middleman model became very common language today, but back then it was new, it was direct to consumer. And what you had was artists creating online communities and cultivating those online communities and going straight to their fans. We called it D to F, direct to fan. And what our mantra was super serve the super fan. So there was going to be this like cohort of people that would do anything and everything. My personal favorite is looking at myself and my business partner, Sean, going on the road and following fish around the, the rock band. There are people that will do whatever it takes to connect with the music or the art or the culture around this artist. And so you want to super serve them and cut out the record labels and cut out all the other noise. And like you said, create that channel. Back then it might've been a discussion forum. Eventually you right. had social message networks. Words. Yeah, message right. words. Then eventually MySpace was a thing. You know, after that, maybe you started to see Facebook and Twitter in the, in the mid 2000s kind of become relevant for, for musicians. And now it's sort of wherever you want to go. I mean, there's so many options. It's, it's so much noise. Right. Um, but yes, that, that was absolutely the premise was cut out everything else and create that direct relationship and cultivate that community and nurture it. How, but how much was, was having um, the buy-in from the content provider 
from the musician themselves because there was a historic resistance, right? We didn't, we wanted to go after Sean, um, what's his name, with, with Napster, right? Because they were stealing their thing. They were sharing with others. I, I, I've got that with, you know, back in my day when I, when I had a CD with my, my group that I sang with and somebody, you know, ripped that CD or made, com, you know, made copies for others, that was money out of my pocket. It required a wholesale shift on the thinking of content producers as well that recognize that sometimes you've got to give it away. I mean, right now, even for, for Grateful Dead stuff, right? They encourage people to videotape and record their concerts and share it. That is a mind-blowing shift from the way things used to be. Absolutely. So my personal opinion about that little era, magical era in the music industry when you had Napster was that the major labels blew it. They had an opportunity to turn that black market into a white market. And then instead right. of doing that, they fought it. They said, you can't do this. They got Metallica front and center. And they put these bands out there to say, you know what, this is stealing. You're stealing from right. the artist. You're stealing from the producer. You're it's understandable they thought that way because that was the revenue model. And it was a threat yeah. to it, wasn't it? It was a threat. What Steve Jobs did, obviously, is create a marketplace that didn't exist with the labels could have done before Steve Jobs was do that with this technology, with this peer-to-peer -peer file sharing technology like Napster and LimeWire. They failed to do it. That's fine. They declined as a result. I think the point is that people are going to go where they want to go for what they want. And music, while it's not a commodity, it certainly is a calling card. There are many other revenue streams for artists that we focused on cultivating, especially around the merchandise, the live event, and upsells around VIP experiential, bundling the music with product. So now the music added more value because you got more value from whatever you're bundling with it. So that kind of mentality and, and doing these trades for music also, maybe I'll give you a song, you give me your email address. This stuff works. You know, people were rallying around these sort of new calls to action as opposed to just buy my disc at Walmart. That was the old model. Right. Right. So here's where I, I think this is really relevant for our audience, for those who are building businesses, because you were on the front end. Now, granted, you were, this is one of those outliers thing that you were born in the right time, just as yeah. the, the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates in the late 60s had that, that sort of the outlier competitive advantage because where they were coming into being, you know, as adults in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you really came about and were in business at a time that you helped drive this shift from selling product to building tribes. And so talk to us about, because this is the part I think is very relevant for those in business. As you look to build your audience today, you may call it a tribe. You might talk about when we have that connection, when we have that relationship, you can, it's back and forth. You can, you can sell multitude of, of items and solutions into that. Talk about your early learning in that and how that has translated into the work that you do today. Sure. So for context, we did about 2010, look at the music industry and look at our growing agency. And we went from really that core of uh, web and content around the web and, you know, video production and graphic design and copywriting to becoming more strategic. So over time, we, we added on brand strategy and we added on more communication strategy and content strategy. We became more strategic, raising our rates, building our team, growing our company. And as a result, we decided to work with brands of different shapes and sizes outside of the music and entertainment space to diversify our portfolio. So when we did, when we made that shift and we realized that we could add value, we took a ton of learnings from the music space over. And one of those was 
what you're talking about with these tribes is really looking at it as like customer lifetime value. You're able to have these really hardcore fans. We call them super fans. You want to super serve those super fans. They're going to drive a lot more revenue than just trying to sell a ton of widgets to a lot of people that may just be flash in the pan there and gone once. And I think that applies dramatically well to apparel brands, you know, different fashion, food, lifestyle brands of all, all types. It's very similar to a relationship you might have in rock and roll. And there's just new tools and new toys now that you can do it. Um, it's even easier with, you know, all the connectivity with social networks, with your e-commerce. You can track everything now. Um, there's so much data out there. I think it's really important to cut through the noise and try to find the signal. And really, if you find something, add fuel to the fire. And, and don't forget that you're telling a story people want to connect with emotionally. At the end of the day, people are buying on emotion. Right. But, but you know, we talk, I, I talk about this as well. You know, we, have, we certainly have some crossover. We've had some great discussions over the years as well. Is that when I talk about people, um, they, they buy emotion. They make purchasing decisions emotionally and they justify them intellectually. But it's not, for those who are dismissive, it's not saying we're overly emotional. It's we buy things because we want to, right? I mean, that's the emotional part of it. It's like, I want that. And so as business owners, business leaders, part of our, our primary responsibility is to make our tribe, our customers, our prospects want what we have. And part of that, in, in, in an era of parity, in terms of quality of products and services, everybody's good. Um, it's certainly good enough, and some are great, but everybody's good. Is what is it that makes somebody feel more connected? And so, when I look at some of the early work that you did, and, and I was always a big fan of certainly watching you grow and your skills and your experience. And now you have in categories that that I haven't touched before. I have such great admiration, but I watched you early on. Um, understanding, and I think in some cases, I think you guys can take credit for driving some of this. Here's how to follow the band. Here's how to keep in touch with the band. Here's to upload your videos or music or something that it wasn't just connecting between the um, the fan and the band, yeah, um, but also the fans and each other and building that community. And and I think if I was going to look at an analogy, uh, probably the closest to that might be the Harley Davidson world, right? The Harley Davidson aficionados, that is a tribe. That is, they have such a, an identity that they identify with each other. They identify with the brand, but they also identify with each other. There's a commonality, there's a gathering. And so talk about how you, some of your learning and what you've done in some of your environmental causes in the Santa Barbara Bowl, in some of the, uh, the Solutions for Dreamers festivals that you've done as well. Because it's not just their connection to the artists that they want to come, but they do feel a commonality, don't they? Absolutely. I think people, we all want to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose greater than ourselves. And one of the great ways to do that is to build and cultivate a nurture community, which I've said already today. That's very critical. I think that the emotions that come out of purchasing or these other things at the end of the day that keep our revenues going really start with a purpose, start with a cause. And to your point about like some of the nonprofit work we've done, Jack Johnson has his environmental and sustainability initiatives. Sure. We kind of bake that into our DNA and many of the initiatives or brands that we work with now, if they don't have a purpose or a cause, we will suggest that they find a purpose or a cause, especially a few years ago when everyone was trying to figure out how to connect with the millennial and, you know, 
tap into their disposable dollars, they buy on higher purpose, higher cause. And so a lot of that, that could be a nonprofit uh, connectivity, or it could be, you know, that there's some kind of uh, supply chain sustainability practices or ethical, you know, labor hiring or something that they can wrap a story around to connect people in. And I think that when the brand fails to do that or doesn't allow that communication to go both ways, people are going to, like you say, talk amongst themselves. And you can either ignore that or, or nurture that. Right. Absolutely. Well, there's also, we're, we're talking a fairly cynical generation as well. Very optimistic, but very uh, cynical. And and haven't you seen as well, and you probably have a better sense of this than I do, but, I, but I've certainly seen it, is when companies will pay lip service with, an, with an, the eye towards tapping into this one, okay, we have to have a cause. Yeah. How transparent is inauthenticity when it comes to that? I mean, I think we can smell it from a million miles away. I think the more genuine and authentic you are down to the DNA level of the organization, the leadership level, the culture, down to like how the handbook is written, all these things, that's where it starts. I mean, it starts right. from- It's an authentic buy-in, isn't it? it but is. there's also a structure to support that vision, right? Yes, absolutely. And if you just try to slap a cause on it, I think people are gonna see that. Um, when, when it comes to community though, I think it's really critical that you're talking about sort of that member to member communication. It's not just a top down or bottom up. And I think that people really thrive in those structures as well. And they will be more comfortable purchasing if there is a ability to communicate across to other members of that tribe or community. So I think okay, that so is- but, a, but, but this is your core competency as a company, as for Oniracom. So how does that in today's world, how does that level of peer-to-peer, of -peer, tribal, internal, external, how does that manifest itself, itself in, in terms of um, what technology do we utilize, uh, live events, others as well? Get a little more granular for our audience and, and tell us how, what structures do you put in place to facilitate and encourage that? So now, as of about maybe three, four years ago, we've added on a whole other service that we call actionable intelligence. And the whole premise here is that all the decisions we used to make were done with gut, intuition, and experience, which is fine, but now we can use data to validate. So we actually go down very granularly and start studying audience members individually and start studying cohorts of people to figure out what drives them, what motivates them, what kind of consumer behaviors and patterns they have, what kind of brands they're affiliated with, um, obviously demographic and psychographic and behavioral information about them. And then we can start to inform the brand, literally here are people that you are alienating, here are people that you, you know, are aspirational that want to try to get into your community or purchase your brand, or here's your core fan base or, or you know, high level consumers that you were ignoring that you didn't even realize were your core. So you can start to have a lot more authentic and genuine conversations from the brand side when you have a full picture of who these people are and what makes them tick and how they behave. So that's, so, that becomes our, our new value add. And, and so to facilitate that, is that dependent and, and facilitated by the, the emergence and the availability of big data, having that data? I mean, because we, used, because we used to do it demographically, right? We would sell basic populations, you know, demographic, psychographic. And the reality is not every 22-year-old Asian woman is going to want the same kind of dress, but demographics would dictate that. Of That's course, right. big data says, let's look at past buying behavior. 
let's look at transportation routes and and residence proximity and all those things as well. And um, how are you helping companies gather, interpret, and put that kind of data into action? So, so we kind of have the, the two sides of it. One is we do this awesome social listening, which is like real time. We, people don't realize they're being surveyed. People don't realize that their conversation snippets that when they're tweeting or they're putting, posting on a comment on a news article or a blog or they're putting on Facebook, that information that's public and available and legal and GDPR compliant is being listened to and it's helping companies figure out how better to communicate with them. The second source is more of the traditional survey data or offline data, which is Experian, you know, you know, credit card processing sort of data, or you're doing surveys where people are opting and raising their hand and saying, I will be part of that. But our belief is that's automatically a bit skewed when people know they're being surveyed, opting sure. into a survey versus just tweeting angrily about some experience they had. We can, we can take those two and marry them together and get a more complete picture of the individual or of a flattened aggregate and general you know, audience for a brand. And so that's kind of the studies that we're delivering. And it's up to them whether they want to activate and act on them based on what we give them or if they hire us to help them you know, activate their campaigns. Do, do you see the future of your company as, as more strategic? I mean, it's certainly the shift there. Also, the strategies and the tactics. Here's what yeah. we're learning. Here's what we're finding. Here's the best and creative and, and current thinking in terms of how to put this into action and and put your audience into action yes so what we do after we get this data is we say great so what now what we want to actually activate on that here are strategies here are tactics it's up to them whether they want to hire us for that it's a great little upsell by the way handing them that little report that says here's what needs to be done by the way we can do it for you or if they've got teams there to do it and then great they can activate themselves but we do like to get tactical as well i think People get lost in the strategies, and I know you and I are both very familiar in Vistage, and we, we would go to these CEO roundtables once a month, and I still do, and we would have these wonderful speakers like yourself come in and give us all these strategies, and then it's like up to us to go implement them, and a lot of times it would just sit on the desk and not necessarily go anywhere. So we like to, to definitely push on the tactical, you know, here are the top five things that can be done right now that can move the needle by the way, we can do them for you. Right. Look, looking at the next, I, I, you know, a few years ago, I would have said, look at the next 10 years. Now I would probably say, look at the next 18 months. Yeah. And what's, um, what's, what's getting you jazzed right now? What's exciting that's coming down the pike? Whether you're developing it, whether you're, you're utilizing new technologies, new capabilities, what's some really exciting things that people need to be uh, on the lookout for? Well, there's, there's sort of what we're excited about here and then maybe more of a general futurist question in there for, for the general population. Give me both. Um, for us, you know, we're, we're now taking this actionable intelligence and applying it to what's called the placemaking world, which is really urban design and planning, working with like municipalities, local governments and architecture and development firms to create, I don't know, a skyscraper, an airport, a college campus, a, a, a plaza, an urban area and figuring out what people that live and work in that space now or that visit that space, what they want. And what does the next 10, 20, 50 year plan in this geography look like based on real time conversation and activity data. We just did a study down in the capital city of Australia in Canberra 
we were looking at a really cool like urban arts and entertainment district we didn't think we would be finding you know certain things such as this one area that people started posting negatively around because we're studying emotion of the post not just sentiment positive negative but the emotion so people were fearful in this one region well we figured out there's no street lamps so it's dark and people are walking there. Now all of a sudden they can say, we need more police activity, we need to install lights. All of a sudden this data is informing the city what decisions they should be making. And that's a very small example, but if you do this on a, on a global level and we're trying to get more in with the Middle East um, and North America, starting this work in Australia, it's very exciting. And so for us, we are shifting a lot of our resources into this place intelligence arena using a lot of the data techniques that we've developed over the last three to four years. And I would assume to some extent it's not just in terms of correcting deficiencies, but also offering enhancements. Yes. What do people want to see in terms of technology? Absolutely. Because I know there were, there were some things that you were doing years ago with, with video walls and interactive and, and, and immediate instant feedback, which we're seeing more across the board, right? Yep. Being able to offer that kind of instant feedback, social media and otherwise as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I so, think, so, 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 well, tell me what you were, you were going to say. So there's the internal part that's exciting for you. What should we be excited about? Oh, I mean, the fact that our data is everywhere, <laughs> everywhere and anywhere. I think that we have an opportunity right now um, for this privacy access uh, conversation because everybody wants everything on demand instantly, but at what cost? What are we willing to give up? What data are we willing to give up in exchange for that? And I think you're gonna to start to see, you know, Apple who takes, you know, security very seriously versus the Facebook model, which is very much a, well, it's free, but you gotta give us your data in exchange. Which model is gonna win out? I think that battle is gonna be um, one of our lifetime that's gonna define how we evolve and grow up with all these technologies that are coming to be. So I think that's fascinating. And I think a lot of those conversations, because you and I are at a lot of the same kinds of conferences, and because I speak, of course, I'm at these conferences around the world, um, you're finding yourself being asked to serve on more and more panels yeah. discussing these very issues, aren't you? Absolutely. It's a blast. I mean, I'm in, I'm in way over my head if, I'm in a, if you're going to ask me super technical questions. I'll I won't. You. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I can, I can speak conceptually for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Um, what's, next for, uh, what's, what's next for your company? Put, put yourself ahead professionally. I wouldn't say 10 years because nobody knows. It's Jetsons, yeah. Cars, and right there, all of that. Um, five years down the road. Um, sure. Tell me how much you're loving what you're doing and what do you want to be doing in terms of growth, in terms of the kinds of work that is going to keep you excited about what you're doing. Because the kind of place intelligence arena working with governments is such a slow and long and painful sales cycle, um, it's, it, we've been in it about a year and in that year we've done about four major projects, which is actually pretty good. Pretty darn good in a year. Yeah. Um, so I would say that, uh, we're shifting away from the world of brands and more towards this world of place intelligence and placemaking. I think that Anericom can make the greatest impact on the world by putting our resources, time and energy into that industry. Um, and watching these smart cities start to start to be built and evolve. I think that we are all moving into more urban populations globally. Our, our population's increasing and um, the infrastructure is just not there to support it. So if we can be putting our, our brain energy into that, then I would say we're doing some good for this, this world. Right, and as consumers, our expectations in terms of connectivity 
And I mean, I, I, I built my house 13 years ago from scratch. And I remember the conversations with the tech, you know, the, the in while the tech ports and that we are being wired for the next 20 years because we had cat five and all this stuff. And you are future proofing your, Oh, I, I put, here's the funny, I put um, intercoms throughout the oh, whole house yeah. so that we could go, everybody, you know, hit the button dinner time. It hasn't been used in a decade, right? Everybody just texts each other or, or, you know, <laughs> now it's, I've got, I've got Alexa in, in every room in my, I mean, I'm, I'm so sick. I have nine Alexas nine dots around. Oh, and of course, then she lights up as I, as I mentioned it here in my office. All right. Hey, listen, so I like to, to finish up all of these podcasts with what I call the lightning round. Uh -oh. which is just some random questions. So first thing that comes to your mind, if you could be any kind of a tree, no, that's, that's trite. No, you would, because you're a tree guy. Okay, if you were to start a Neuracom today, as opposed to in your dorm at UCSB yeah. in 2001 or whatever it was, right? What would you do differently today? Everything, everything. No, literally, I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know about business i didn't know about i didn't know about finance i didn't know about hr i didn't i mean i wore so many hats through the years i would have done it completely differently i'm not just saying that for a, a cop-out answer um my god what i've learned in 18 years Mr. Yeah. which which makes it now is the time to hire you for your your brilliance and insight and everything else question number two how has grown up how has growing up with hippie parents shaped your your worldview Oh, I love them. Um, absolutely has kept me more curious, more open, and more progressive, which I think are, are extremely important traits of entrepreneurs. Good. Good short answer. And I know they're going to watch this. So they're laughing right now and looking at each other because I was actually there at their wedding in 1971 or 72 in the gigantic, the fro and everything else. No, they are my favorite people on the entire planet and the best heart. And, um, and they've raised good kids with you and your sister. Um, last question, what did you like best about my mom? Oh my God, her laugh, hands down. I mean, it's infectious, her, her laugh was infectious. I loved everything about her, I loved being around her, but that laugh was awesome. We would just have the best time with you guys and anytime she would come out, it was, it was like, I can't wait for her to get here and we'd always do something fun and eat some yeah. good Mexican food. And laugh at things that were inappropriate. Especially the more inappropriate, the better. Yeah, that was that was especially when you and your brothers were around. Absolutely, your aunt Barbara was my mom, and and passed away some years back. But we all love her. Hey, listen, what a what a cool treat it is to talk to you in this capacity. We'll talk offline. We'll talk about our lives and everything else. Um, I'm so impressed. Uh, I don't want to sound paternal at all with what you have done because you were this kid who was making websites and things here you were doing world-class work with world-class cities. And for anybody who's listening, I, I, and I don't pitch my, um, my guests, I let them pitch themselves, but, but look them up, spell them. Um, for people who want to get in touch with you and learn more about Oniracom, what is, what is the website for them? So Oniracom means communicating dreams and Oniracom is spelled O-N-I-R-A-C-O-M.com. Outstanding, O-N-I-C-R, wait, I, I, I messed it uh, up. You almost got it. Okay. O-N-I-R-A-C-O-M. You got it. .com. Jacob Tell is my guest and my cousin and one of my favorite people on the planet. Hey, thanks for taking the time today. Go, uh, go change the world and, and make good money doing it because there's no shame in that. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Once again, uh, check out some of the past episodes. I have some 
really amazing, interesting um, variety of, of professionals who have things to say and things to teach. And as always, we do it unscripted and no holds barred. Um, be sure to subscribe, whether you're on uh, Stitcher or uh, iTunes or C-Suite Radio or here on my website where you see the video version of this, please click to subscribe so you get notifications of future episodes as well. And, um, and take a look through the roster of other ones available. And um, while you're at it, quick plug, brand new book out is yeah. Why Customers Leave. Here we go. Pitching the brand new book is out, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back by yours truly, David Avern, available in hardback and uh, audiobook and Kindle and everything else. And the fun thing is, no matter where you are, you can say, Alexa, play the audiobook Why Customers Leave by David Avron. <laughs> she just starts doing it and uh, it's pretty amazing anyway thanks for tuning in thank you jacob we'll talk soon thanks for having me for past and future episodes be sure to subscribe at theverryvisiblebusiness.com you can also learn more about david Avron's keynote speaking and consulting at visibilityinternational.com connect with us on social media and check out david Avron's latest book visibility marketing at amazon.com this has been the Very Visible Business Podcast with David Avrin. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.